It's holiday shopping season, which means advertisements are even more pervasive than usual. Digital ads in particular seem to be everywhere, whether they pop up while you're watching YouTube videos, checking your fantasy football team, or just appear in your Twitter timeline. Someone, somewhere, is trying to sell you something online. And they often rely on data you leave behind when browsing the web in order to capture your attention. Digital marketing and the data behind it is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Today's guest is Miami University's Glenn Platt. Platt is a professor of marketing and the C. Michael Armstrong Chair at Miami. He also serves as the director of the Armstrong Institute for Interactive Media Studies. Thanks for being here today, Glenn. Thank you. I know you teach some classes at Miami on social media marketing and digital marketing. How did these become areas of interest for you? You know, in in some sense, um, digital marketing is kind of eating the world. I'm I'm trying to remember who who initially said that. I I can't take credit for that. But uh, the phrase has kind of found its way around where, you know, there was a time in which we could talk about digital marketing as if it was separate from, you know, the billboards you watched, your television marketing. And these days, all of those things have become integrated. It's, It's sort of the singular piece that sort of binds it all, right? And so whether it's a, buying a Twitter ad that's tied to a particular television show and so you only see it in Twitter when that show is playing mm-hmm. or knowing that you're traveling past a billboard and now Waze, for example, kind of gives you basically virtual billboards on your on your Waze app. So in some sense, you know, it wasn't as much a decision to move to digital marketing as the recognition that it was simply all there was at this point. So when, when were the first digital marketing campaigns started? That's an excellent question. As early as there was um, sort of a commercial internet and sort of the post-ARPANET era in which there were websites that brands could put up and, you know, use as uh, promotional vehicles, digital marketing in some sense existed. But as kind of focused campaigns, you know, there were definitely some uh, key turning points in the digital marketing history. So um, some of the campaigns we like to talk about in our class, like the seminal campaigns, um, Burger King had a campaign really early on Facebook. If you unfriended 10 people, it would give you a free Burger King coupon for a burger. (laughs) And then it would send those 10 people a message saying, Richard Campbell unfriended you for a burger, right? (laughs) Um, And so it was viral by nature, right? It would go to 10 people, right? I mean, the math of it was really clear. um, But it also kind of got at these interesting philosophical questions of what does it mean to really have a friend on Facebook uh, and still was consistent with the brand. So there were some, uh, they got actually, Facebook banned that particular campaign. (laughs) It was around for about a week or two and then they kicked it off. So real early experiments like that where, where companies were trying to leverage the technology to do something that hadn't been done before. I mean, that's what makes digital marketing unique. I mean, that, that's when you're effective in it, not when you're replicating what had been done, right? The banner ad, um, mm-hmm. you know, which you are more likely to survive a plane crash statistically than to click on a banner ad, just so you know the numbers <laughs> here. It's, it does not happen very often, but instead are able to, to kind of capture the energy of the social space and then use it to help amplify what your brand is about which was what you know, Burger King was trying to do in that campaign. Glenn, you talk about uh, markets as conversations. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that means? 
Yeah, you know, that that phrase actually, when we talk about the history of digital marketing, that phrase comes from one of the seminal pieces about digital marketing, uh, which was called the Clue Train Manifesto. It was this, uh, it's a fabulous book, which you can now find online for free, <coughs> legally, I want to say. And <laughs> and that was uh, the Clue Train Manifesto. The first line in the manifesto was that, that markets are conversations. And it was this recognition that what digital and social spaces are are by nature communities. And in fact, when I talk with my students about digital marketing, you know, I tell them the title of the class is digital marketing, but really the title of the class should be online community management. That's your job. Your job is to manage a community of people who have some shared interests and stop thinking about markets as as places of sort of transactional exchange, but rather platforms for people who have shared interests to engage in, you know, their love of, you know, Necco wafers or whatever <laughs> it is that they, you know, <laughs> there's there's a saying that like if you think you're one in a million people, you know, there there's over 3000 people like you on the internet. Like the the the, the sense of of community is built into it, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do is not think about the relationships between brands and customers as transactional, but rather participating in some sort of shared conversation. So can you Tell us what are some of the components of a, a digital marketing campaign. A digital marketing campaign. Uh, I'm going to give you a non-answer to that. Um, <laughs> it's a classic professor move. So the non, the non-answer to that is, um, I think the best digital marketing campaigns are actually not campaigns at all. And so the story that I gave you about Burger King is a great story, right? Or we could talk about you know the Old Spice guy and mm. every everyone's got these you know there are these sort of very focused examples of a thing that happened at a moment in time. But a true digital marketing campaign is really about managing an ongoing set of conversations. So, you know, let's say we're talking about the Cleveland Browns and we want to have – we want to talk about what is a good campaign for the Cleveland Browns. It won't be about a single tweet that you do that's really clever. It's going to be about finding people who love the Cleveland Browns and giving them a platform to have a conversation around it and giving – you know, using Periscope to have behind-the-scenes tours with the general manager and using Snapchat to capture um, special filters for the ultra fans that are sitting in the best seats and so they can share images with each other. Um, you're you're kind of creating a Petri dish, and a, cam- a digital campaign is a Petri dish more than a single act. The single acts are great stories. Um, the, 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 my favorite at the moment is um, – have you seen the, uh, the what was going on with Kentucky Fried Chicken's Twitter followers? Oh, yes. Wasn't that fantastic? Yeah. So uh, I think a marketing agency guy realized this and tweets this. He's like, hey, I just noticed that KFC only has 11 followers on uh, – or is only following 11 accounts. Sorry. They're only following 11 accounts on um, on Twitter. Take a look at them, right? And you go and you look at them and the first five of them are – the, each individually, the Spice Girls, and the other ones all have the first name Herb, and right. So it's eleven herbs and spices, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and everyone laughs and thinks that's awesome, which it is. It's totally awesome. And then KFC, as an aside, uh, commissioned a painting for this guy uh, of him riding on the back of the Colonel, and I mean, there's a whole right story with that, and that makes for a great conversation like this around a podcast. That's not going to sell Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right. What, what's going to ultimately sell Kentucky Fried Chicken is for the people who love the 11 herbs and spices and want to replicate them at home and travel great distances and are upset about the cancellation of a particular type of sauce packet and want to talk about that. Managing those people, that's a brilliant digital campaign. The 11 herbs and spices are clever. 
But at the end of the day, that's not a campaign, right? That's that's publicity, and those are different things. You bring up the sauces, which reminds me of the Rick and Morty McDonald's tie-in with the um, Szechuan sauce. The Szechuan sauce, right? So, could you maybe (laughs) talk a little bit about that, and then sort of explain where you think that that campaign, what it did right, and maybe what it did wrong? First, tell them who Rick and Morty are. I, I think Glenn could probably explain who Rick and Morty are. Uh, so <laughs> Rick and Morty is sort of an alternative cartoon uh, is probably the best way to think of it. It's yeah. on Cartoon Network, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of science-driven kind of. Yeah, lots of sort of alternate reality, you know, quantum physics kind of stuff. And it engenders pretty strong feelings one way or the other, right? Yeah, um, pretty and, strong fandom. Yeah. And, and our students are really into it. I found a lot of fans <clears throat> among my they are, Students, yes. um, and it's it's a clever show. I mean, it's, yes. it is a funny show. Um, and there was, uh, yeah. So McDonald's had a one day event where they were going to have this sauce that um, I think it was Rick was a big fan of. I yeah. think it was, I yeah, think it was Rick. Rick. And so um, they only had it for this one day, and they and they ran out. Like the the demand was so high, they ran out, and people went like they went nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> they just totally went nuts, and it backfired completely because they were angry and they took it out on McDonald's. And, you know, it's a it's a great example. I think even of the point I was trying to make that like campaigns run that risk because they're they're stunts. Like McDonald's famously. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was like four or five years ago, had – it was McDonald's Moments I think was their tagline at the time. And so they did this hashtag like tell us your McDonald's Moments. Right? And you can imagine how that right. would go, right? <laughs> <laughs> like lots of bathroom-related uh, McDonald's <laughs> Moments and um, – <clears throat> you know, because they didn't really think through how people were going to co-opt it or Coca-Cola had a Twitter bot that people um, tricked essentially into tweeting out Mein Kampf. Yeah. Or, you know, that because you're almost kind of throwing out the gauntlet to saying, hey, screw with me, right? Because we think we're clever with this campaign and the internet always likes to think it's more clever than you are. And so, you know, that that's why I think that's a risky proposition, these campaigns, because you, you think you're doing something really cool, but inevitably there's some mechanism that someone could screw with you, right? And so um, focusing more on helping people, like I said, amplifying as mm-hmm. opposed to highlighting. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today is digital marketing. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Our special guest is Glenn Platt from Miami University, a marketing professor here. So, Glenn, um, you were talking a bit about the Szechuan sauce and how that played out sort of in social media. And I have a question about some of these, um, particularly Twitter accounts, um, where... Um, they get kind of feisty with their followers, right? So Denny's is very famous for kind of having this tongue-in-cheek approach to sort of how they interact with their their audience in a way that sort of is playful and sort of pokes fun at themselves and at other people. But then also Chipotle had that huge meltdown where they had sort of like the pretend takeover of the account and the person was tweeting out all this terrible kind of stuff and they sort of had to backpedal from that and sort of apologize. So if someone is trying to create a digital media campaign, right? And you sort of, I think, get at the sort of maybe this issue of authenticity kind of is what you were circling out. Yeah. What, what do they need to be thinking about if they're going to create a campaign that actually meaningfully engages an audience? You know, when I, when the first day of class in my, in my social media marketing class, I, I tell them why I love, I love digital marketing. And, um, and you know, here, here's it. Like 
the worst thing about marketers is like the madmen vision, right? Mm-hmm. That this idea that there's a bunch of people sitting around a room and they're going to convince you that if you just smoke cigarettes, you're going to get laid, right? That yes. that somehow <laughs> there's some magical things that are out there and it's about obfuscation and don't look at this and don't look at that. And the beautiful thing about the internet is the internet susses out that immediately. Like the internet has very little tolerance for people that are not authentic and are not true. And that that goes for facts as well as voice, mm. you know. And so the job of a digital marketer <clears throat> is to speak in that voice, right? And to instead of trying to convince someone that if they just, you know, bought your product, you know, their whole their lives problems are going to be solved, that like, look, this is the best thing about this product. You know, and we're going to tell you what the best thing it is pure it, it is in some sense the the essence of being truthful. Like What's the, the, old, the old saying, like, the good thing about being honest is you never have to remember your story. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it, that's kind of your gig, right? You're not trying to remember a story here. You're just trying to kind of be true to who you are. And that means Denny's or Wendy's is another example, yeah. right, where the brand <clears> – <throat> if you took that exact same person who's brilliant behind that Wendy's Twitter account, right, and you put them behind – I don't know, Burberry, right, or or Harvard or something like that, it would be a disaster, mm-hmm. right? Because that's not who they are. That's not the voice. And so I figuring out what is your brand's voice, you know, really what what would they sound like if they were a person? What would they look like? How would they behave? And then and then just try to amplify the things that are awesome about what you do. That's it. That's the job. Well, money's being spent to do this. Yeah, quite a bit. You know, and so how do you decide you've got a return on that investment? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the beauty of digital marketing, as opposed to the world before digital marketing, as if there was sort of a demarcation line there, but is that everything is measurable. Everything is measurable. I mean, not just like how many people come to your website or click on a link. You, We know – how long – as you scroll through Facebook, how long do your eyes linger on something before mm-hmm. you scroll? We know where your mouse moves on the page. If you don't log out of Facebook, like hit the logout button. Facebook knows every website you go to every day, all day long, even though you're not on Facebook. Chrome knows these things. You're, I mean there are layers of sort of interfaces with the internet and they're tracking all of these things. And so and, – and I'm happy to talk about the creepiness factor in a minute because <laughs> there's a whole lot of that. But it allows for very direct conversations about return on investment. I mean you can buy an ad on Facebook, let's say, that says, look, I'm only going to pay for this ad if someone clicks on the ad and actually buys my product. Mm. Otherwise, I don't get charged for the ad. And Facebook knows that. They know that they've clicked on it. They know that you've gone all the way through the checkout process and gone to that confirmation page. And when that little single pixel of invisible image that's pulled from the confirmation page tracks back to the fact that you were at that website, you as the company get charged for that ad. That That's the level of, of um, attribution. Now, one of the big problems right now with marketers, this is called the attribution problem, is it's easy to know if someone clicked on that ad and bought something. But if that person doesn't buy that thing for two or three days or a month, mm. then how do you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, how, do you, how, do you, how do you sort of attribute the search that they did, right? Was it your Google search buy? 
Was it the Facebook ad? Was it their friends talking about it? How do you kind of break apart? That's the attribution problem right now. And Procter & Gamble has totally upended digital marketing recently by telling digital marketers they will no longer buy ads unless they can give them clear data on the attribution wow. of those ads. And so the digital mar- – like one company has upended digital marketing in the last year by demanding – accountability along those attribution lines. This is kind of like the problems in television ratings, right? When you could start recording shows. Yeah. And then the network's worried that, well, how do you know somebody didn't record and watch it three days later? And and the accountability factor there, or the, yeah. what you call an attribution, is a problem. And so. in fact, for, for like YouTube, this is to sort of think yes. about the parallel. This is a big deal because they want to sell ads, right? So they're all about telling these companies, oh, yeah, your ads got seen – and then it turns out, well, YouTube counted a, a, a watch, like that, that someone actually watched the ad, if they only watched the first five seconds of the ad. Mm-hmm. Oh. Like, well, that's not really watching. So how many yes. seconds is watching an that's ad? Right. And how do we really know that they were watching it and didn't have another tab open? Because Chrome can tell you that, mm-hmm. but they're not reporting that. Right. Yeah. So talk more about the creepiness. <laughs> uh, what we should be worried about, because this talks about, I think this gets into privacy issues and people knowing stuff about us that we don't even know they're, they know. It does. The first day in my, my class where we have the students actually go through and and buy a Facebook ad, they go up to the point that they actually hit submit, but they go through the process of buying one. There's like this moment where the pin could drop in the class and like <laughs> no, where they're like, holy, how did they – they know this, right? Um, when you start digging into that ad buying platform, you come to realize what – what they're doing is not only doing all this creepy tracking that I mentioned, but then they triangulate that, right? They've got in sort of database terms, there's like, you know, key pieces of data that are connecting up to other data sets. So they're buying data sets about political contributions and they're buying data sets about your credit score. And so you mm-hmm. can buy an ad to say, I want to place an ad on Facebook that goes to women between the ages of 45 and 50 in this zip code who have donated money to the Republican Party, have two kids. Uh, recently got married, have a credit score of 700 or higher, drive a Volvo, and tend to buy sort of health food (laughs) products. Easy. Like that's an easy one. I mean you can even get far more complicated than that. So there's massive amounts of data that gets all triangulated to create this picture of who you are and then ads are sold on it. Now the story Mm -hmm. Facebook will tell you is this is how you don't get served – you know, useless ads. I don't know if you remember the early days of Facebook, like where like uh, women would get ads for like shaving equipment, right? (laughs) You know? Uh, And so, you know, no one wants that. So on one hand, you know, the idea that the platform could anticipate what you want, like retargeting, for Mm -hmm. example, which delivers an ad to you based on a website that you've already been at. We've all seen that where you're like, how did they know I was on Patagonia's Mm -hmm. site? Like, it's because they were tracking that, right? But if you are on Patagonia's site, it's probably because you wanted to buy something from Patagonia. So maybe seeing an ad isn't a bad thing, right? That's that's the pitch. The dark side of this, right, as we know from the last presidential campaign, is this allows you to target ads based on race and mm-hmm. it allows you to target ads based on um, all sorts of um, ideology mm-hmm. that you almost have to ask yourself, just because we can do this doesn't mean that we should. 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today is on digital marketing. Our guest is Glenn Platt, director of the Armstrong Center for Interactive Media Studies at Miami University. So, Glenn, for someone who is concerned about this creepy tracking, I, you know, I just noticed actually today that I had, I had clicked through a site on Facebook, and then I opened my smart my iPhone, and there were there were ads for this site in my iPhone. I'm like, how is this happening? So, how do you how do you avoid having this kind of data collected? Uh, uh, do you just minimize your footprint digitally? Do you sign out of Facebook? Do, how well? How do you suggest for people who <laughs> don't want to turn yeah. around and see ads everywhere? Yeah, you know. So let me let me just say one thing before answering that about this, because to this question of whether or not this is valuable, like um, I think the, the the problem is that we're doing things because we have the data, but not because we know that that activity is going to be useful for the person. In other mm-hmm. words, if you've ever seen an ad for something you've already bought, right, and you mm-hmm. think, shouldn't they know this, right? Shouldn't they know I've bought this? Um, and it's because that they're not quite there. Like they know that they can give you an ad based on your all this sort of private information, mm-hmm. but it's not quite smart enough. And if it's not quite smart enough, it might as well not be there at all. Like it reminds me of – have you ever heard the um, uh, the effect called the uncanny valley about like when you deal with virtual reality people but they're they're lifelike and they're so almost lifelike that they're creepy as hell because they that last little bit is the hard part. Mm-hmm. Like you'd much rather have a Pixar person who looks mm-hmm. fake than like um, – what was that Tom Hanks train movie? Remember where uh, the – Polar Express. Yeah, the Polar Express. Yeah. Or Princess creepy. Leia at the end of Rogue. Oh, Long. yeah, right? Yeah. Because it's not quite there. It's the same thing with ads, so, right? The, these digital ads aren't quite anticipating our needs. They're close. They're in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. But because they're close and not there, that makes them far more annoying mm-hmm. than if they weren't there to begin with. So now to answer your question about how you prevent this, like I'm going to get all tinfoil hatty on here, <laughs> right? Like um, – because I have this weird love-hate relationship with this stuff, right? I teach my students how to actually do these things, yet I have like four different VPNs on my sop, my my laptop and my phone. I, I actually have a pouch in my <laughs> – I've got a pouch I can keep my phone in that's um, a Faraday cage pouch because um, you can be tracked you know, mm-hmm. with your phone whether or not it's turned off or, or on. It doesn't make a difference. The government can track you. On, I don't mean to sound government tinfoil. Like they literally can. There's these stinger type things that give off fake cell phone tower pings and then they can find, figure out where you are. So – and why do I have it? You know, Because I can I guess because I think it's none of their business where I am. So things you can do, right? You um, – VPNs are the easy way to mm-hmm. do it, right? VPNs these days are, are super affordable and a VPN is just like a tunnel for your internet traffic. So it takes all the things you do on the internet, puts them through a pipe and then they come out on the other end. Mm-hmm. And that pipe could be in England. So for example, if you have a VPN that's working out of England, you can watch the BBC right. iPlayer and things like that. Um, or it could just be in – in Indiana, but either way, it's not attributable to who you are. But even VPNs, depending on your browser, are still going to track – your browser can still be tracking your activity, mm-hmm. right? So you should be using incognito mode. Um, uh, but even then, Chrome in incognito mode keeps track of certain things that Opera, for example, in incognito mode doesn't. I mean if you really want to – this is a longer conversation, but if you want to <laughs> kind of get off the grid – um, Firefox is a good browser to use to kind of keep yourself mm. more privacy-free, especially the new version that just came out. You want to use VPNs. Um, you want to be careful whenever you're on – particularly on like Starbucks and public internet sites and places mm-hmm. like that because it's easy to track 
the things you do. Then there's all sorts of things you can include on your browser that block, that do ad blocking and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But let me let me now sort of wear my conflicted hat. Like, do you know how much it costs to run Facebook? Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. billions of dollars a year, right? You know, or you know, newspapers that that need to do their business, right? They need they don't just give away information. People don't work there for free. And so, you know, there's something to be said for saying, look, I'm willing to give up this privacy as my payment to use these things ostensibly for free because I know they're not free, right? And and becoming comfortable with that, managing your own privacy, right? That's that's the trick. I have this vision that someday we're going to be like I call them chief marketing officers of ourself. Like we should get rewarded for giving up our data. I should get a check, <laughs> no. you know, from from Google because they're selling my data and making something. I should get a check for that. Like mm-hmm. that's the kind of ultimate end game. You brought up newspapers. So I'm going to ask you to put on your economist hat here because we're living in this world and I worry about legacy media, especially newspapers, where we're in a world where the aggregators are getting all the money, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we – and this is a show about stats and stories. So stories are generally produced in the journalism business by the reporters, but the greatest compensation is going to people that aggregate those stories. And uh, our students today, we know they're probably the best informed generation ever. They still – they read newspapers but not the hard copy. They read them online and they usually get there through Facebook or Google. Sure. So how do you think about this – and uh, I know we're kind of at the beginning stages of the internet. <laughs> this is a as media go, it we really are. No, it's it's just a forget. recent invention. Yeah. So um, I worry about newspapers. I worry about journal- journalism in general because these are folks who actually go out and get us real information and do the documentation when they're doing their job right, and we depend on them. So yeah. Should we be uh, should be be worried about uh, about this more than we are? I mean, Richard, that's that's a million dollar question, right? Like, I, if I had an answer to that, um, I wouldn't be sitting here with you guys. I tell you. I, that's a that's a. I mean, that's that's the question. So I I hold out hope, you know, that alternative business models will win the day. Like, I think the toothpaste is out of the tube on this. Like, there's. You know, the the walled sort of information networks that the attempts that early attempts for that failed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's fixing that. You know, in the mm-hmm. same sense that like I, I uh, you know, music is actually a, gr- a great sort of parallel to this. Like, you know, people aren't going to make money selling albums anymore. Not not in the way that they mm-hmm. used to. Right. And we just need to accept that. And say, okay, what other revenue models can a musician have mm-hmm. today? Which there are a bunch of really interesting revenue models now. And so um, the the book I am working on now uh, uh, about what I'm calling the intimacy economy is, is around, you know, these kind of intimate relationships that people can pay for and want to pay for with the things that they love, mm-hmm. right? So for musicians, that might mean, you know, um, doing a pledge music contribution to an album and then getting your own autograph copy or mm-hmm. um, or even more extreme, like some musicians have like, go record shopping with me. For $1,000, you can go record shopping with me. Um, and for someone who's a huge fan of a band, that is, that's a steal, right? Yeah. Like I would totally do that. Um, <clears throat> I think a news the same way, right? Finding news is going to have to rely on that 10% or 20% of people who really care about this, like mm-hmm. who want to. Like I I, um, I give money to The Guardian mm-hmm. every year. You know, when that mm-hmm. pops up, I don't have to do that, but 
but I think they do really good work. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's just like it's it's a it's a tip jar, right? It's a it's a way in which I can say that. And then some of the more smarter news outlets um, or even aggregators like Kotki.org. I don't know if you ever like he's got this kind of. Uh, Patreon patronage kind of model where you can say, look, I want to be a patron of the arts, essentially, a mm-hmm. patron of this news site. <clears throat> and in exchange for that, uh, maybe I get special access to early information or I can have a conversation. I can, you know, I can have, um, <clears throat> I, I'm trying to think of who would be a journalism superstar, um, but give me a name of somebody. Um, Christiana uh, Amanpour. There you go. I can have Christiana Amanpour um, uh, do my voicemail message. Right for five hundred dollars, she'll she'll do a voicemail message. I'm I'm not saying she she said she would do this, but like <laughs> but that that kind of model, right? Like finding these people who care a lot about it are willing to pay mm-hmm. for some special, maybe more intimate relationship with that mm-hmm. with that news source. I think that's that's where things are headed, right? Mm-hmm. That we have these kind of different tiered relationships with news media. That there's the common stuff, and then the special. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a dimension of this that we, you talked about the the que- creepiness factor and the use of this data. A lot of times when data is collected, there are certain uh, safeguards that are in place. You know, if there's when you're giving data in a medical context, there there are laws that govern that. There are laws that govern the access to data in university and educational contexts. I I wonder if there, are there ethical guidelines for marketing use of data, and if not, should there be? I I, I don't know. Like I mean, I'm not aware. Of, of certainly there, of any sort of regulatory, um, like like right. formally enforced. Yeah, there's no HIPAA for this, right? The... There's nothing like that. <laughs> I'm I'm fairly sure that uh, these marketing associations have different sort of ethical codes and standards that they've used. But the problem is, this technology is changing f- way faster than you could ever have a committee get together and decide how you're going to legislate around it, right? I mean, you you can hope for some guiding principles, but um. But yeah, um, you know, sadly, and bad actors will behave badly and do with this data, unfortunately. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Uh, Sorry to be ending on that note, (laughs) but thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.